Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, sculptor and visual artist Al Farrow. Where do you, where did you come up with the idea of building a foundry? It sounds like a potentially dangerous process. Dangerous. To be turning yeah. on that foundry for the first time or whatever. I, you actually, it. you know, I remember thinking, you know, I could die today because I really didn't know what I was doing, and we, we even just melted whatever metal we could find. I mean, it's like. <laughs> There was a BMW repair shop next door, and we melted all this stuff and mixed it all together. Well, the metal, <laughs> it turned out, I don't know what we did, but like when we demolded these things, they just broke into pieces like glass. But we did learn how to operate the equipment. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk. Thanks for all the response you've given. The best place to currently reach the show is through the Fun to Know podcast page on Facebook. There you can find links to our past episodes, which originate at SoundCloud. We're still seeking to conquer other platforms, but soon we hope to have the show available through iTunes and Stitcher, among other outlets. On today's show, we'll have part one of an interview I did with San Rafael sculptor and visual artist Al Faro. One of six brothers raised in Brooklyn, Al relocated to the San Francisco Bay Area during the Summer of Love and devoted himself completely to his art. Building his own foundry, Al began casting bronze figures that contained messages of beauty, struggle, and politics. Financially scuffling for years, Al's art remained uncompromised as his work slowly received recognition. In recent years, a series of reliquaries Al created using gun parts, bullets, and bones have received enormous attention leading to a group show with Shepard Ferry, creator of the iconic Obama Hope poster, in Washington, D.C. just weeks before the election of Barack Obama. Al's work is shown internationally. It has been featured in the magazine Juxtapose and has been collected by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, with a new show opening in March of 2015 in New York City. But beyond Al's accomplishment is a great and generous soul, full of experience and hard-won wisdom that he loves to share. I'd recommend going over to alfaro.com and taking a look at his work. Full disclosure, he is also my wife's uncle as well as a friend. I interviewed Al in his long-held studio where the buzzing and droning sounds of machinery kick in regularly. We'll hear part one of our interview with the second part scheduled to post the following week. Without further ado, here's Al. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, in a family of six brothers, all of whom are talented, all of whom really have great uh, hand-eye coordination and visual uh, art. I don't know where it comes from. I, I honestly believe it's hereditary <laughs> because my nieces and nephews, and they all seem to show talent and an inclination toward the arts. Did, did you see that in your parents at all? or? You know, my parents were poor people, and, and they... They had little opportunity. My dad had very little education. He started work at 10 years old, as a lot of people in his generation did. And so his education stopped there, his formal education. He was an intelligent man, but not well-informed. But he loved art, and he loved to take us to the museums. We'd walk five miles to the Brooklyn Museum 
and he would take 13 kids or 15 kids, and, you know, we'd walk both ways. It was an adventure. We'd always make donuts the day before, so we'd have a huge bag of donuts to fuel us. I just can't believe we ate that many donuts. I don't eat donuts today. <laughs> anyway, that's, that was the, the early exposure was actually my father's interest. He had done photography, uh, artistic photography, in the 1930s, and uh, once he started having a lot of kids, he could no longer continue. He, he was a laborer, and he didn't have a lot of income and was often unemployed. And so, you know, it was very uh, limiting having less opportunity because of less less money. Sure. Yeah. But uh, it didn't seem to stop us, you know. And I think as as growing up in the slums of Brooklyn, I saw a lot of people give up before they even grew up, you know, particularly uh, in in the um, minority population. Why you can't count minorities because. We were white, but we were minorities yeah, yeah. in the neighborhood. It was mostly black and Puerto Rican people, but a lot of those people gave up before they got out of school. I, I grew up in a, in a factory town, basically, in South Jersey, all built around a, 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 the DuPont chemical plant. And uh, that was my sense, too, as a kid. That, that I, I, uh, The kids I remember in elementary school were full of life and curiosity yeah. and interest. And uh, something about that background really you know, uh, stymied that, that sort of uh, growth. I always got the feeling that their parents told them, don't try, it's not it's not going to work, it's going to just bring you disappointment or something. And, and, you know, like when I was in my late teens, you know, I, I graduated high school, I was going to college at night and working during the day, and uh, I, I became friends with this uh, black guy who was in some of my classes, and he was as smart as me, and he was as, as full of life and enthusiasm as I was, and we would meet every few months and go out for drinks. In those days, you could drink at 18, and we were both not much past 18 when we started this, and uh, we'd go to a bar, but we couldn't go to a white bar because he was black, and we couldn't go to a a black bar because I was white, so we'd go to a Puerto Rican bar. (laughs) This is up (laughs) in the City College, New York area, up in 139th Street, uh, the city. So we'd find, a, you know, a Puerto Rican bar that somebody would bother us, and uh, and we would chat. And the friendship got strained simply because I moved fast through the business world. I was working as a draftsman in those days, and mm-hmm. and I just was very successful. And I kept moving up. My I increased my income. I got married. I had a kid. I, we, everything went fast and easy. Mm-hmm. You know, all I had to do was apply myself, whereas he applied himself just as hard, if not harder, than I did, and he could not break through some of those ceilings. This is before the civil rights, sure. you know, movement opened some things up, and and before the society made adjustments that that some of which we can see today. But uh, it was really sad to 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 see that, and I felt terrible because. You know, I wanted to share my the enthusiasm of my successes, but at the same time, I needed to temper it because I recognized, you know, opportunities didn't didn't come for him. Yeah. Didn't, and I, I knew this with a lot of people uh, around me in my life. Um, mm. By the time I was twenty three, I left New York anyway, and I moved to California, which I loved because everybody seemed to be from somewhere else. 
Yeah. And so everybody was reinventing themselves, mm -hmm. in a sense. Uh, Before you get to California, I'm, I'm kind of curious because uh, seeing seeing the, you know, your work uh, over the decades, uh, all the work you did, there's a real sense that you found yourself very early on. And uh, I'm curious, you're talking about going to the Brooklyn Museum of Art as a kid. Do you remember as a kid, like, wh what were those sort of uh, primal influences? Was there a work in the Brooklyn uh, Museum of Art that you'd like to go revisit when you went there? Well, you know... I was really touched by some things. I remember I was probably around five years old, maybe six, and we had a school group take us to the Brooklyn Museum. And I believe this was a Rodin statue. That was, yeah. I mean, the toe came up to my eye level. <laughs> um, but I noticed that the toe was, like, polished from being touched. The rest of the sculpture, the patina, was black on bronze, you know, and... and Pretty typical dark browns, blacks, and little greens. And this toe is completely polished, and it really stood out to me. And then I looked at the whole piece, and, and the penis was polished. And, <laughs> and, and it was just at the tip of the penis and the tip of the big toe were the things that had been touched by people. And that really impressed me. And way later in life, when I was working in bronze, I... You know, I had my own bronze foundry and all that, and I was starting to do patinas, and I always remembered that. And, and that made a big uh, influence, believe it or not, on how I did patinas in my own. And what I would do is polish all the areas I wanted people to feel free to touch. I mean, I wanted to invite human touch. And so I would polish the top of the head or the breast or... The, the knee that stuck out, whatever was most prominent, just to say, go ahead and do it. Someone did it before. <laughs> and that's really all it takes is, is the fact that it was, it showed that it had been touched before sort of gives people permission or at least invites people to touch. And so that was one of the things that influenced how I applied my patinas. And I would pre-polish areas, then do the coloring and rub it back again. And it worked. I, I created work that I really wanted people to touch. Yeah. And even in the reliquary series that I'm working with now, um, I do that. I, I rub areas to invite touch. And, and some things are almost compulsive. Um, <laughs> you know, people do respond. And I, I love that. But that came out of those early experiences that um, even in a child's mind, knowing nothing about art or bronze or patinas, it influenced me and, and just rushed to the fore when I was confronted with the choices later in life. Yeah. What, what was your art education like growing up in Brooklyn? Uh, I didn't Brooklyn? have a formal art education. My older brothers, who are about two years older, twins, um, they were recognized right away as being very talented. And I remember they, they got art lessons at the Brooklyn Museum. And I, I didn't get that. Uh, I wasn't... They didn't let me do a lot of stuff that my older brothers did because they were older, and, and that became a big contention between <laughs> me and my dad through life until I left home. But um, that was one of them. They got all of this, like every Saturday or something, they went to the Brooklyn Museum and, and did art, you know, drawing and stuff like that. And, uh, I, I just was not given any of that. Uh, but my brothers did influence me, and... Being older and more developed than I was, um, I was somewhat intimidated by their talent. Um, my brother Brian uh, 
was selling his paintings to his teachers by the time he was 10 years old. Oh, wow. I mean, he was so good. Yeah, I remember seeing work that he did as a teenager and was, was shocked at how, how beautiful it was. Yeah, he just had an enormous innate talent. And, and you know, he had some small training, like at those art lessons at the museum. Mm -hmm. But um, He went on to do a lot of work in photography as well, I guess. Uh, he did some photography. Uh, he was so talented. He got accepted to Cooper Union, you know, which is really was a... A difficult mm -hmm. school to get into, but again, economic opportunity really limited all of us. Yeah. And he didn't manage to continue, went on just with an associate's degree mm -hmm. and went into commercial advertising. And his twin, Howie, he did the same. He didn't go on to college, but he, they all just became commercial artists. Three of my brothers did. Uh, my brother Rob, too. Mm -hmm. but, I, I didn't want to follow in my, father, my brother's uh, footsteps at all. As a matter of fact, elementary school taught me I didn't want to do that. Because all the teachers knew who my brothers were, and they had preconceptions of me, and they didn't know me. Yeah, yeah. And then I had a, a brother one year younger who was also in the school, and because he was a little different, you know, they put him in, in a, and he didn't show talent in an obvious way. They put him in a, like a dumb class, I mean, and he was anything but. Yeah. But it was like, that's what they did in those days. And for me, the elementary school by fifth grade, that's 10 years old, had separated me from the bulk of the student body and put me in what they called a special art class. Oh, nice. And, well, it was good. It was great because mm -hmm. it was very encouraging. But... You know, it, it, it made us special and not everyone else. And exactly. there was a certain inequality about all that. Yeah. But just the same, uh, from fifth grade on, I was, in this was the New York school system, I was kind of pushed into where I was obviously talented. And so, you know, we would draw the backdrops for school plays and we would um, do all the drawings for the school yearbook and things like that. And, and that, that sort of continued. Then when I went into middle school or junior high school, they called it in those days, um, I also was put in a special art class and, again, did all the school backdrops and the drawings for the yearbook and whatever else came up. But um, they did treat me special in relation to my uh, artistic abilities. Yeah. And yeah. so that did develop. But because my brothers were went into a, a special art high school, the School of Art and Design, um, I didn't want to go there. I just I just wanted to do anything that my brothers, you know, didn't want to do what they were doing. I guess when you're one of six, you know, there's a, you, know you really need to, to fight for your own identity. And yeah, you need some individuality. So I, I elected to go to uh, Brooklyn Tech, which was, you know, kind of an engineering school, you know. My my best buddy at the time was a smart kid, and he he was from a, a very educated family, and and he was taking the test for Brooklyn Tech one day, and I said, well, I'll go too, you know. So I, I got a half a day off of school and went and took this test, and uh, I was actually a little bit surprised, but I got accepted, mm -hmm. and and so that started me in an engineering direction. Yeah, um, and so. The school trained me, and my artistic abilities actually made me a really good draftsman. So I was able to take this technical knowledge and my artistic inclinations and, and combine them 
And by the time I was 17, I was working as a draftsman in an engineering office. Wow. Got right out of high school. I had one weekend off and went to work. <laughs> what was the work world for you uh, like for you at, uh, as a teenager? Well, you know, I was an ambitious kid. I just, I knew that we grew up in a poor neighborhood and that we were on the bottom of the economic ladder. And I was, I wanted to, to climb. I wanted to get out of it. I wanted to move on and up. And I had a girlfriend. I, I wanted to get married and have kids. I was like way ahead of myself. <laughs> but, you know, by the time I was uh, 20, I was married. Uh, by the time I was 22, I had the kid. I had, you know, a good, high-paying job in, in the engineering world. And uh, I have to say, it wasn't very satisfying. Yeah, because I mean, you could have you could have stayed in that position for the rest of your life, right there. Yeah. I could have, or I could have moved up through it. I did move up. I stayed in that world for about nine years, and I moved up quickly. By the time I was twenty-one, I was supervising a lot of men twice my age, and and it was difficult mm -hmm. because they resented this young, barely shaving <laughs> kid, you know, telling them what to do. What kind of work were you doing at the at the office? These were, uh, it was engineering work. Uh, we were interpreting the engineer's work into drawings. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to um, do really, really good and fast drawing. I mean, it was just as my natural abilities allowed it, but also my intelligence allowed me to grow within the job, and I learned a lot on the job. Mm -hmm. I went to college at night all, the, all that while, but shortly into it, I got really bored with both engineering and um, drafting. I would change my jobs often, which would keep me interested. It wasn't, it kept me involved, it kept me interested only as to a certain point. After a year or so on a job, I would start getting bored with the work because it would become repetitious. Yeah. And so I would switch. One, one year I worked doing drawings on ships. And I worked on the drawings for the Enterprise, the first nuclear aircraft carrier. Wow. Believe it or not. Had to have a security clearance at 18. You know. <laughs> um, Working in the war industry. Which was really weird because <laughs> that was the beginning of my political activism. Yeah. And uh, I was investigated by the FBI. But what, what can you find on it? 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid. Heavy yeah. detention in this child. Yeah. So it was kind of interesting. I thought, you know, this is really funny. I didn't get to do any high-security stuff. I mostly did drawings of the, you know, the, the floor and walls and yeah. stuff like that. But it was interesting for about a year. And after that, you know, I found myself doing work on sewage treatment plants or airport structures. And mm. I did work on some interesting stuff over the years. Uh, one of them was, uh, like, I worked on the last two terminals built at JFK Airport. I did all the drawings for the United uh, Terminal. Wow. Super complicated. I remember it well still. <laughs> but, you know, the, the irony of it all is that, I mean, I was so glad to get out of engineering when I did. Um, and it was mostly a boredom factor with the people and, and the repetitiveness of the work. But had I not done that, 
for those years and not absorb that kind of information, I couldn't do what I'm doing today in the Reliquary series because it has come full circle. I actually have to, for, for the more complicated structures that I'm building, I mean, these are churches and synagogues and mosques, and some of them are very complicated I, and large, and I have to draw them out. Mm-hmm. So I actually still have all my old drawing tools, you know, the scales and the <laughs> triangles and all that stuff. And I'm using some of the ones that I had since high school um, to draw out these things that I'm doing, you know, what is it, 60 years later or something. You wow. Know, so really kind of incredible. <laughs> when I think about it, it's a little strange because it's such a full circle. Yeah. And I disliked it so much when I left the engineering job that I thought I never, ever want to do this sort of thing again. I never want to pick up a drafting tool. And and for decades, I would do nothing that was pre-planned. Everything had to be spontaneous in my artwork when I was doing it. Yeah. Except... Until I matured <laughs> and come full circle around. Start to use all the tools available to you at that yeah, point. Yeah. Now, now I recognize how important that chapter of my life was without ever knowing why or where it really would fit <laughs> ultimately in one's life. Yeah. So how, where, how did that come to an end? What, what was... Interestingly, I was so good at this job that they kept asking me to put in long hours and work overtime and meet certain kinds of deadlines and... And I remember, this is after my first kid was born, and just talking to my wife on the phone and working late every night, you know, I said, well, let's, let's go on a vacation. I'll, I'll take a long vacation after this job's done. And mm-hmm. so I, I made her some promises. And the job was never going to let me loose. They had a, a, a good worker that they were going to use. Yeah. And so I made up this story. Um, <laughs> that my wife was having a nervous breakdown. And this is, this is really true stuff. Okay? I made up this story because the, my supervisor was a good friend. Mm-hmm. And he was just never going to let me loose. You know, I worked for him for two different companies. I mean, it was a good relationship and a good friendship. But I couldn't just say, i I got to get out of here and i got to get my wife out of here, you know, we need to have time together and do things. It's, all I'm doing is working, you know. And so I just said, you know, the doctors are saying, so it took six months and I built it up that uh, the doctors are saying that she really needs to get away and blah, blah, blah. I built up this whole fabrication and got myself a leave of absence. And because they, were, they didn't give leave of absence, but because I was a valued employee, they made an exception and gave me leave of absence. So we packed up and went camping all over the United States for two months. My goal was to see as many of the national parks as possible. How old was your son around then? One. One. Wow. We, we had a Volkswagen. I took the back seat out. What, what year is this of imagining? This is 1967. 67, wow. Summer of love. Summer of love, yeah. <laughs> and we ended up in San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, so, so we took the seat out of the Volkswagen Bug. Put our equipment on the roof, put a soft-sided playpen in the back, (laughs) and he lived back there. He slept there, he 
it was everything. We threw toys and food at him, and we <laughs> camped all over the United States, and it was fabulous for two months. And as we ran out of money and we were on our way back, I turned to my wife. This is the first leg on the return journey. I said, I really don't want to go back to those New York winters, and, yeah. and California is so beautiful. And she, I said, you know, I did bring examples of my drawings in a suit. I said, I, I could look for a job. And she said, okay, let's turn around. Wow. We turned around. <laughs> Middle of the night, on our way to the desert, <laughs> turned around, went back, and we I, I got a job right away. Wow. It was really weird. I was interviewing with Bechtel Corporation sure. in San Francisco. I was the chief engineer there was interviewing me. I could see out the window. My wife was parked in front of the building. The, the Volkswagen was there. The tent was on top of the car. If I got the job, we were staying. If I didn't get the job, we were going to, you know. Turn around and head back? Head home, because we were really just about broke. Yeah. And so I got the job. And they paid for me to move from New York to California. They actually uh, paid our airfare round trip. They hired movers to move all our furniture and everything to California. And so I basically got a free transfer over from East Coast to West Coast. The agreement was I had to work two years, which I did. I wanted to be an artist. I mean, I had already started doing art in New York before we left, mm -hmm. and uh, at the time I was painting, not sculpting, and I kept wanting to do art, you know. I mean, there was something really driving me from a deep place that's not really explainable, because like while we were camping, I remember in Los Angeles, we were camping in the Los Angeles National Forest outside of uh, town, and it's it's not really a forest, it's a desert. Uh, but we're camping out there, and I found these, these smooth rocks on the coast that I picked up. And I didn't know anything about carving at the time, but I just went to a hardware store and I bought some cold chisels, which are all the wrong chisels and everything. <laughs> but I bought a hammer and some chisels. I started carving heads out of these stones I found on the coast. And, of course, they were very crude and primitive and uh, poorly done. And I thought, no, this is fun. I'm going to throw them in very hidden places all around the National Forest. <laughs> and I did. And someday somebody's going to find these things and they'll be aged and weathered. <laughs> They're going to wonder who, how, what. But, I mean, they weren't worth keeping, but it was, that was what was going on in me. I was boiling inside with art. Yeah. And it wanted out. And... Um, so you were just throwing heads everywhere. Well, I was just, yeah. So, but I was doing all kinds of stuff and, and not holding on to it. I, I just really needed to allow myself a place to express myself. Yeah, but so. I was a responsible young man, and I had my wife and kid, and I, I wasn't, you know, willing to, you know, put them through 
poverty, having grown out of poverty. Sure. What, what age were you now, too? I was in my very early 20s. Okay. Uh, I, I, let's see, that's when I first moved. I st stayed in engineering till, I'm thinking, 29. Mm-hmm. 29 years old or yeah. 28 years old, something around there. And by that time, I was taking night classes in the local community college, and I was, you know, really starting to uh, develop my sensibilities, you know, knowing that I really wanted to be an artist and that it was counter everything else. Uh, I started carving wood in the living room, and we had this carpet and the wood chips would stick to it because, I don't know, you just couldn't vacuum it up even. It was getting very frustrating for my wife. And it, it caused a lot of tensions. Um, and we separated at, at around that time. Yeah. Um, actually, I, I quit engineering earlier than that. I think after, it's getting hard to remember, a couple of years, I did my two years that I agreed to. And, and I, I definitely needed out. But I went back as a consultant a couple of times, you know, just because I needed the money. But it did reach a point where I just had to do art and, and nothing else would do. And that caused my wife and I to separate. Your, your bio lists your first uh, exhibitions around the uh, Bay Area. Is 1970 around that time? No, I think it was 1980. 1980? Uh, my, my earliest group shows and juried mm -hmm. shows and things like that but my first one-man show as as an individual artist was in san francisco and i believe it was 1980. what was working up to that that first show and the in these you know juried shows and and uh, group shows what what work were you starting to do around that time well and my earliest work had like my first sculpture was a beggar mm -hmm. which i did in new york when i was you know like 22. Um, I don't know if I ever fired it. I don't know whatever happened to that thing. It's gone mm -hmm. somewhere. <laughs> but uh, I didn't know much about the making of art except for the creative process. But I didn't understand the technical sides of things. So I, I still have boxes of stuff I did in my early 20s that were, or late 20s even, that were unfired clay. Hmm. And they still have never been fired. <laughs> <laughs> could you fire them? I guess you yeah, could fire them again. Fired now. Years, right? I suppose yeah. if I ever set up a kill, I'll, I can do that. <laughs> uh, but just the same, I mean, it, it's, it's like the technical side eluded me completely, mm -hmm. but the creative side was just kind of gushing. And I, I was doing thousands of drawings and stuff. And I just couldn't hold that stuff in. But um, I was doing strong art from the very beginning with strong subject matter. And uh, I had gone through an experience um, after my divorce and all that. I lived with another lady and adopted her child. And after a couple of years, that didn't work out. And But we were still lovers after we'd separated and she got pregnant again. And I really didn't want more kids. I already mm -hmm. had three. Yeah. And um, I made it clear that, that I would support emotionally, financially, and everything else, but that if I was given any choice, I didn't want that child. Mm -hmm. And so she elected to have an abortion and resented me forever after that. Wow. 
Um, but she did elect for the abortion. Well, I, I was not happy about being part of an abortion. So I, I was doing this sculpture about life and dance and new life that came out of the birth of uh, my adopted son, mm -hmm. whom I helped deliver. Uh, and so I had this dancing pregnant woman. And after the abortion, I just, in an emotional moment, tore the stomach off. And it left this, you know, it was a small scale piece that so left deep scars of my fingernails tearing through the clay. And I cast it in bronze. <laughs> and then I, um, I mean, this, that was my first really strong piece. But I was trying to do something about dancing. I also did a wood carving of that, mm -hmm. but without tearing it up. Um, Life-size wood carving. Anyway, that led me to being introduced to someone who had a dance studio in San Francisco, mm -hmm. ballet studio, the Academy of Ballet. And um, while I was doing that sculpture, I, I just wanted to get a more dancerly quality Mm -hmm. You know, something a little bit more pure in the realm of movement. And so, so, what was your uh, your experience with dance at that at that point? Up until that point, my ex-wife had studied modern dance, and uh, I don't know. Just there's something about dancers, the way they move, just in their normal life and motion, mm -hmm. attracted me. You know, but I, I wasn't even aware of it yet, because it <laughs> turned out later that. It, all the major women in my life had all been involved in dance at one time or another, mm -hmm. which I think translates to a certain quality of of body. Yeah, certain you know, grace or grace in motion, or even in the way they stand and sit. Mm -hmm. There's there's really special intrinsic qualities there. Sure, and, and that apparently is an attraction to me that wasn't conscious at this time. Yeah. At any rate. Um, when I got to the dance studio, I was looking to refine this pregnant sculpture, but I'd never been in. I mean, I grew up in the slums of Brooklyn. You're not <laughs> going to ballet class. Where know? was this ballet class at? It was in San Francisco, in the San Academy Francisco. of Ballet, mm -hmm. church and uh, church and market. Okay. Anyway, so I'm just I got permission to come in and sketch. So I sit in the corner and I'm sketching, and I am like absolutely blown away by these little kids who were, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14. Uh, I was in my early 30s then. But they could remember so much and that they, you know, everything they're asked to do, they do it and then they reverse it and then they turn around the opposite way and then they do it forward and backwards again. And it's like, so you really develop all of these coordinating skills. It's just fascinating and of course they they were lovely you know I mean they they're all in their tights and leotards and you <laughs> with all these wonderful little athletic bodies I mean the whole thing was overwhelmingly attractive mm -hmm. and I thought wow this is so cool and I decided to do a series of sculptures of dancers working not mm -hmm. dancing and because it's the work that really fascinated me mm -hmm. and how hard they worked and so uh, I started sketching four or five days a week at the academy. And 
my drawings got good and fast. I could catch the figure in 30 seconds or less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could fill in some details later if I wanted. But basically, you know, it was a great exercise. And I started sculpting the dancers. Well, after about two years of sketching, the owner of the school, who had been a ballet dancer, uh, finally said to me, can I look at your drawings? <laughs> <laughs> and so she sat down and, and we went through a couple of sketchbooks. And, and she said, you know, you, you've got a really good eye and a good hand. You, you, you capture everything you're seeing really well. She says, the problem is they're all making mistakes. And you're capturing all their mistakes. She says, I could tell from even your brief drawings which kid is which by how they stick their butt out or not tuck under or how they turn out or don't yeah. and all of these technical things and I'm going and then every time you talk to ballet people they talk about line uh -huh. um, the quality of line yeah. and they're always trying this is why they point their feet and do all these extended things yeah. is because they're trying to create a graceful very long line mm -hmm. And that's one of the reasons short people aren't usually invited to dance and mm -hmm. stuff like that. It's like, there's a lot of parameters there. Anyway, uh, no one could explain what was the ideal line. So this all led up to that I had to take ballet. <laughs> okay, now, this was a big move for me. Yeah. Because growing up, you know, with gangs and street fighting and uh, all that kind of... Yeah. city street stuff i definitely have a stereotype of what like 50s brooklyn was oh absolutely and i looked like a greaser with creased back hair and the it was the doo-wop days you yeah know? yeah it was a, a fun time but also a bit tough and probably they didn't look kindly among ballet dancers i'm guessing no, i think the, not the youth um, gangs of brooklyn <laughs> i, I, w I would have been trounced to say the least um there was and no it, way that i even if i was inclined to be a, a dancer that I could have uh, got away with yeah. it where I grew up. But even even ten years later or whatever, you know, fifteen years later, that 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 uh, idea sort of lingers in the. It was there. Yeah. I was very nervous. Yeah. yeah. But I had to, um, you know, I I had to put on tights and ballet slippers and all that. If I really wanted to learn the line, mm -hmm. this elusive concept of line that everybody talked about but couldn't articulate, I said, thought the only way is jump in and do it and learn it from the inside out. And then also I would learn where's, where do you hold in terms of tension and uh, compression and things like that in the body, which is in sculpture, you, you, you need to exaggerate a little bit mm -hmm. to make it read because then it will feel to the viewer and it's an unconscious process for the viewer. But, but if you put that little extra squeeze in there and mm -hmm. compress something the person looking at it senses it. And mm -hmm. so um, I needed to learn those those special places. And I did. I learned a lot. I actually became a very decent uh, <laughs> ballet, adult ballet student. Yeah. And the I Bolshoi came according? Or, no uh, way. But I, I never <laughs> wanted to perform. But I, I got up to a good intermediate level, and I even got into partnering and things yeah. like that. But I mean, to, that, really, to really get that deeper understanding of your work, I mean, there's, there's uh, you know, the research uh, really pays off, I imagine. It does. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm really a believer in research, and I, I get very deep into uh, researching any subject that I'm exploring for my art. Mm -hmm. And so this was, 
the beginning of, of that sort of thing. And I, I really immersed myself. And so I took class um, mostly two days a week. Some years I did four days a week class. And, and I um, really developed and, and my work developed consequently. Mm-hmm. And ballet dancers just went gaga over my work. Of course, they don't have any money and they couldn't buy them. <laughs> but, you know, lay people um, appreciated them to the degree that they could. Uh, people who had studied dance in their own past as a viewer of the sculptures really responded and wanted to own them. And they sold very well. And the, the, the finished product was, was made of bronze, right? Bronze, was, yeah. yeah. And, and you, when you uh, carved it, what, what were you carving? I, well, actually, I, I worked in wax directly. Mm-hmm. In the, it's the lost wax process for casting bronze. And I, I worked directly in wax, um, which when you warm it, it's as malleable as clay. Mm-hmm. And actually more controllable because you can cool it and warm it uh, to any degree and, and pull out the quality of the material that mm-hmm. you want. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of uh, potential for control. Uh, so I found that uh, really a good way to work. And the only way to support the visual dynamics that I wanted was like having all these extensions, you had to work in metal. Mm-hmm. Because any other material would break and, and wouldn't support, you know, yeah. a whole figure standing just on the point of one foot, mm-hmm. you know. So the, the material needed to be metal. Yeah. And, and I, at the time, I was building my foundry and building the equipment. And where, do you, where did you come up with the idea of building a foundry? That well, seems I, like I wanted uh, to cast in bronze and I had no money. <laughs> but I had stuff. So I had uh-huh. motors, and I had, I had a beat-up old furnace that I had inherited. Where, where did you have a space for this? Or yeah, this studio here. This very studio in San I, Rafael. Yeah, I. It's almost forty years I'm in this studio. Mm-hmm. Next year will be forty. Um, when I started this studio, my my sculpture teacher from the local college had died, and I was trying to buy some equipment, off his widow because I knew she had no use for it. Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, well, you know, if you're going to do sculpture serious, I'll put it all in your hands. And I was able to start this studio. And of course, I couldn't afford much of anything, even rent. So I got some of the other students that had studied under this uh, sculpture teacher. His name was Farhad Moisey, a Persian man. and. Um, his widow gave us all his tools and equipment. And that was like getting a, a 50000 or $100,000 grant, you know, and buying everything. It was like totally unbelievable. And so there was a group of us that started a studio together. I went out the day she told me I could have the stuff. I found this studio. I just went, got a newspaper, looked up, commercial real estate and found this space. I think it was $300. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was cheap for yeah. all, all that space. Anyway, that was the beginning. Uh, I really wanted to work in metal. Yeah. And so uh, he had this beat-up old furnace that needed a new lining and new everything. And how, how large is such a furnace? Well, we could melt 100 pounds at a time, mm-hmm. but the furnace itself is about as big as the chair I'm sitting in you know mm-hmm. it's three feet by three feet maybe or yeah, something like that yeah but in the cylinder cylindrical mm-hmm. yeah solid um, 
pipes, when we moved into this space, it used to be a candle factory. There were pipes all over the place that were no longer being used, you know, for mm -hmm. uh, steam tracers in two-inch pipe for melting wax and sending it around the space. Mm -hmm. And so we just salvaged all this pipe and piped up the whole thing and got the gas turned on. And I, mean, I didn't know that much. I took a, some casting class at College of Berlin and... Um, Sounds like a potentially dangerous process dangerous, to be turning bet. on that foundry for the first time or whatever. I, you know, actually, whatever. you know, I remember thinking, you know, I could die today <laughs> because I really didn't know what I was doing. Foundry and, accident takes the uh, budding artist. And we we even just melted whatever metal we could find. I mean, it's like <laughs> there was a BMW repair shop next door and, and they said that these uh, little parts that they usually throw away were silicon bronze. And I thought, oh, that's the kind of good good bronze so we <laughs> melted all this stuff and mixed it all together and we just melted it and poured it into molds ingot molds just as a practice to see if we had any control yeah well the metal <laughs> it turned out i don't know what we did but like when we demolded these things they just broke into pieces like glass I mean, the metal is weird. I mean, I ended up throwing it all away. But we did learn how to operate the equipment we, we built. I had to build a kiln to burn out the waxes and to high fire the ceramic shells. And then we built a, a unit for this refractory material that's called ceramic shell uh, out of an old army soup kettle. It had to rotate 24 hours a day with a paddle in it. I mean, complicated stuff. Super efficient. It, what we built was great and served us for a really, really long time. Did you take an outside work to in the yeah, foundry? Or, I did. Yeah. That was how I helped pay for metal and everything else. Mm -hmm. But there was often lean times. Uh, and, you know, you just melt whatever you got. Yeah. And that's it. So, I mean, I, I really struggled for quite a lot of years. But th nothing held me back in terms of spirit. I, I, I was going to keep doing and trying because that was just my nature. Yeah. And so uh, my motto was always, I'll do it or I'll die trying. And that was, <laughs> so I, I felt really fortunate. And I even kept my studio open to artists who had less. Mm-hmm just to let them have opportunity too. Yeah. Because I felt so fortunate. But, you know, it never translated into selling a lot of art or making a lot of money, and so I you know, continued to struggle financially. But, it, but it's probably how you build a community around yourself. Yeah. 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 And I, you know, I think I have a very good reputation of being a sharing person, not mm -hmm. just in terms of um, my space and equipment, but information for other artists I, I don't have any secrets well what was what was the atmosphere like here and specifically in san rafael with an artistic community i mean there was i always Actually, imagine yeah. there's a lot going on here back in those days it was incredibly good mm -hmm. when i was taking classes at the college of marin what, what around what the, year would this be this would be 40s, 50s, 60s. <laughs> i'd say in the early 70s yeah early to middle 70s the local college was absolutely great the night classes were so full of artists from the community taking advantage of uh, the foundry the ceramics um, kills all that there was a 
they even had glass. We had everything. And there were talented kids, but all the adults from the surrounding area were there. It was so exciting because you just walk into the room and you got high on the energy because everybody was creating and helping each other, encouraging each other. Uh, it, it changed after some time, but, but that was a spectacular period with all sorts of people who went in lots of directions. A lot of people got well-known, and I was amazed that out of that group, you know, people like David Best, um, Carol Gold, there's, there's a whole number of people I, I knew who just went on. There were some brothers who went up to set up a foundry up north in the Sierras and became international artists. And, I mean, there was mm-hmm. all of these great things that came out of that period. Yeah. And the teacher would have these dinners. I, I used to go home for dinner because I had a wife and kids, but um, I was really envious that these other people got to hang and talk art doing communal dinners, you know, and they'd heat the food in the kiln. And <laughs> I mean, it was like totally bohemian. <laughs> it was great. And everybody was into it. And they, and they had very limited equipment, especially the foundry. Because in those days, if they were melting metal, they also melted anything they got their hands on. And, I mean, the whole room filled with black smoke. (laughs) He died at 53, and it's not a wonder. Three sculpture teachers in a row there died at 53. Wow. Something's not right here. But it was exciting. The energy was infectious. It was so good. It's, it's it's funny as a as a young person growing up. I think I knew San Rafael for two things: for the uh, Shel Silverstein uh, song about the uh, the smoke off. Oh yeah! <laughs> and Sunny San Rafael was where the pearly sweet cakes came from. And also there was a movie Serial, which was all about uh, Marin and, and, and San Rafael, as mentioned. The hot tub thing. Yeah, it was a very. Uh, uh, well, Marin I, was known for some of those things, you know, peacock feathers and whatever. And, yeah. Massage with peacock. <laughs> <laughs> it's not far from San Francisco. It's no. you know this this great uh, you know bucolic uh, retreat almost off the, well, to the north. It, Marin County in general, San Rafael and all the surrounding area was also really full of musicians. Mm-hmm. You know people like Carlos Santana and uh, Neil Young and uh, I mean, so many people lived here. Yeah. And worked here, uh, Taj Mahal, all kinds of folks. Mm-hmm. They were everywhere, and it's actually still there's still quite a few uh, well-known musicians in the. I was in the music store in Marin years ago and uh, was listening to this eccentric fella talk and wondering if he came in and bothered the record store clerk every day. And then I realized it was Doug Som, the uh, <laughs> head of the Sir Douglas Quintet, just hanging out, talking blues with the uh, record yeah, store clerk. People love to just talk shop, you yeah. know, about especially with people who overlap mm-hmm. in interest. So there was this creative. Uh, atmosphere in this area and it still feels really creative to me actually Santana has a studio just around the corner here oh wow um, and they, they rehearse there all the time uh, but you, it's just a creative place and I think a lot of people people recognized it and and even inadvertently play influence each other and, and everything the energy builds yeah I mean, I used to hang out with musicians more than visual artists mm-hmm. back in the early 70s. You know, it just was there. You know, it turned out I wasn't a very good musician. I couldn't even 
do back beat with the drum. You have talent in your family on that end, though, as well, don't you? Yeah, I do, but it's not mine. (laughs) No, I don't have any musical ability at all. Uh, But I sure admire people who do. I really do. that came out of those dancer uh, sculptures uh, I imagine that was probably all exhibited together at some point yeah my first show was at the Bank of America building downtown mm-hmm. and I filled up the whole downstairs which was two galleries and the corridors between that had these big triangular uh, showcase windows and and then a week later I had a show opening in Munich Germany also with dancers, mm-hmm. and I was invited through a ballet foundation that was somehow connected to the studio where I sketched. It, it just all, I mean, I mean, I went from having never shown, and in, within two weeks, I was showing internationally, and, <laughs> and I sold 80% of each show. And wow. It was... They're I beautiful pieces. I mean, yeah. they, they uh, visually are, are, are kind to the eye, you know. Yeah, but, you know, uh, as a developing artist, it wasn't good in terms of subject matter. People who were, in quotation marks, serious artists didn't do commercial subjects. And yeah. a lot of people saw dance as a very commercial subject. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd go to these openings for these serious artists and, the, and get introduced and they'd go, oh, you're the guy who does the ballerina. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I was, now I was talking about the work uh-huh. in dance with that body of work. I was yeah. talking about the commitment. Well, there's, I'm, and it was actually a reflection of what I was going through as an artist, uh, where it was so much work, so much hard stuff, where you're applying yourself continuously against all odds, and that's what the dance world s- symbolized for me. Um, there's a sculptor who was famous for doing young dancers. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, can you think of? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, I can see his work in my mind. I'm trying. Mac- oh, Degas. Degas. Yeah. Yeah, Degas. Well, I got compared with him, of course. Mm-hmm. Degas' dancers, you know, are somewhat clunky. Yeah. You know, I mean, he's really famous for that, and and his sculptures are very famous, and I've seen mm-hmm. every one of them again and again, and there are shows that travel sometimes of the complete body of work. Mm -hmm. I think there were like 40 or 42 of them. He never intended those to be cast in bronze. Mm -hmm. The only one he actually cast was the famous one with the real tutu on the bronze called Young Dancer or something. Mm -hmm. Anyway, all the others were cast posthumous, and uh, he would spin in his grave. He did not intend for those studies to be cast and shown. Yeah. It would embarrass him. But they, the family did that. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a whole history there I can go into. It'll take too long. <laughs> but just the same. Degas is something, of course, I got compared to. Yeah. But he, his work, also, you know, ballet was less developed in terms of today's art form of ballet. It yeah. is a far less developed. I mean, people are so much more stretched and so much more able, and they can do so many more turns and spins. And yeah, I imagine modern and... training really refined the art even Absolutely. further. Yeah, it was pretty unrefined mm-hmm. at that point. You know, 
uh, compared to today. But still, within it all, those kids who are studying dance, and there are millions studying dance at any time in America, only a very tiny percentage, uh, a fraction of 1%, are going to end up dancers. Mm -hmm. And of those, only a small percentage will end up in a major company, because there are only a handful of major companies yeah. in the whole yeah. country. And so when you take the whole thing into perspective, that's how, I mean, I was aware of that, and that's how I felt as an artist. And so for me, dancers were symbolic of any artist applying themselves. And so, mm -hmm. Of course, that didn't come across. You know, people saw them as ballerinas, mm -hmm. you know. I never called them that. They were always dancers working. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you can't. Uh, tell people how to interpret. You can yeah. just put it out there and they'll interpret it. <laughs> and so I was uh, getting embarrassed about how people uh, spoke about my work. And uh, this event came up through the Museum of Modern Art here in San Francisco called the Soapbox Derby. I think it was 1978. And I got invited to participate. And I made this 15-foot-long carved wood figure really powerful male figure on wheels, you know, two hands holding one wheel in front and two wheels in the back. Well, this is a large, uh, like, rideable derby. sort of soapbox derby yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the Museum of Modern Art soapbox derby. Yeah. But it was a big event, and it took me out of obscurity. I mean, the New York Times came out to do an article on it, and when they looked at all the entries, they chose mine <laughs> to take a picture of for their article. Well, what exactly? I mean, can you describe it a little more? The... Well, it was a, a male figure, almost prone, holding mm -hmm. onto a wheel, belly sagging, almost touching the ground in the middle, and then his toes on the axle of two rear wheels. I used a Model T Ford truck tires and wheels, wood spoke wheels in the back, and an old wood spoke Studebaker wheel in front. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's up there at the um, DeRosa Foundation up in Napa. That's right. I've seen the piece now that you mention it. Yeah, yeah it's it, it it it's good. It still holds up. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, uh, interestingly, uh, after uh, DeRosa bought it, he had set it up on a hill, and we staked it to the ground. Mm. But I was like, oh, this is not so safe. <laughs> so some teenagers decided to take it for a ride one day. Wow. Well, they didn't know that it weighed about 1,500 pounds because it had a steel frame inside the wood mm -hmm. um, and that the turning radius was like 60 feet. I mean, you, <laughs> and you needed some muscle to turn it on a smooth road. And they, they were on a hill on a dirt road on this guy's ranch. And they got on it and it immediately went out of control, went down the hill and tumbled and... <laughs> Got partially damaged. Ouch. Sorry. So I got hired to fix it up, and then we <laughs> parked it in a much better spot where it is now. It's racing days were over. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I had to race it, you know, in the, in the Fort oh, McLaren really? Park. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was great. They, they, <laughs> interestingly, there was about 15,000 people in the crowd, and they had one of the local radio announcers um, doing the master <laughs> ceremonies part for the show. and. They raced one at a time down the hill, but the crowd kept converging on the the, the raceway. Yeah, and at, it was a very steep hill, and at the bottom it had a bump. I mean, I was really worried that I was going to get thrown. <laughs> I was supposed to have brakes, but <laughs> didn't. And 
I tightened the bearings before the race so that it would go as slow as possible, but it went very fast. Yeah. And it was, I got cheered. I was first was the first and only time I've ever been cheered by a crowd. <laughs> and you know it's what? It's a good feeling, isn't it? It was an amazing feeling, and I thought, that's what rock and roll guys feel. <laughs> you know, I mean, really, the, it was this yeah. enormous roar and... But you know, for some people, it's addictive. Yeah, I never needed it a second time. <laughs> that was enough. I tasted it. It was very tasty. Yeah, yeah. but it wasn't for me because I, I don't like being a public persona. Sure, you know? sure. I'm kind of private guy. We. Were, <laughs> that was such an amazing period, uh, but that took me out of obscurity. Yeah. You know, uh, the announcer made. A special announcement when my car came up yeah and i didn't have a helmet or anything like that and he goes this this is dangerous you know <laughs> he goes does anybody in the crowd have a helmet to loan this guy and sure enough somebody throws down a helmet and there's people passing it so this whole thing starts building this 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 tension right and then he goes you know this if this hits the crowd people are gonna die you better move and just like the red sea parting you know, these people got out of the roadway and I made a straight run and it was beautiful. I mean, it was such an incredible event. Even when I got to the bottom, this beautiful blonde young lady came up to me and went, you're incredible. I'm an art groupie. I want to get together with you. <laughs> and we did. And it was, <laughs> This was, I mean, the whole event was so incredible, but it was the sort of thing that I didn't need to repeat. Yeah. yeah. You know, I like the studio experience. I like being <laughs> alone in mm -hmm. the studio creating, and the best feeling in the world for me is, is that fulfillment, that sense of having done something well. Mm -hmm. And that's between me and me. And so the, the adulation or the cheers or any of that other stuff that comes out of you know, a public experience. It really doesn't uh, do that much for me. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, fleeting. It was, it was nice to have the experience, mm -hmm. but at the same time, I didn't need it again. Yeah. Um, I, I was still anxious to just get back to work, because mm -hmm. work is really what my, my life's about. Well, you talk about about the uh, the dancers uh, not being as, as uh, rich with content, maybe, or, or you know, it didn't have the sort of political content that came later with 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 your work. When did that get well, infused? The, the dancers were actually an interruption. Mm -hmm. I started doing art to do social commentary. When I was painting, I was doing you know this was during the Vietnam War, and I was. Um, a, a political activist. I would go to marches and I would, you know, write letters. And so, what years is this in Brooklyn, or is this back in? in or uh, it started in West Coast. in Brooklyn, but it, it continued here. And I even took my kids in backpacks to rallies and yeah. protests. Who who, and, who who awoke your your political thought? Uh, were you 
You know, oh, where, where were a, you hearing the, you know, the word had, on the street? I had a good friend in Brooklyn. He was my best friend growing up from very, very early. His name was Jeff Pam. And he had a brother, a younger brother, who we used to, who was kind of a, a, a brainiac. Mm -hmm. We all teased him all his growing up because he was younger. Yeah, mm -hmm. always the young guy gets picked on. You know, and we, we gave him the nickname Adam. A-T-O-M. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he had an atomic mind. And anyway, as he got older, I really recognized his intelligence and his uh, where he was excited. And he was very active. He was one of the freedom riders in the Deep South to wow. get people to register to vote and stuff. Mm -hmm. And he influenced me. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the same time, I was working in engineering uh, and and I, I had a friend from Ethiopia. I worked in companies. This was interesting because there were some comp companies I worked in. They were almost all foreigners. I remember counting 40 nationalities in one company mm -hmm. that I worked in. There were very few uh, Americans in engineering at the time. Mm -hmm. And there was a big push socially to get Americans more involved in engineering because all the students were foreign. Mm -hmm. And all the people I worked with were foreign. So I had this friend from Ethiopia who was really majorly political activist, and he was involved in the UN. Mm -hmm. And I was like 20, 21 at the time. I was newly married, and we kept getting invited through him to these United Nations parties and stuff. I was like, I didn't even realize that. This was really <laughs> fucking incredible. I, I, I was just going along with whatever because it was what was happening around me. But objectively, looking back, I mean, I had such opportunity. Anyway, so I was meeting all of these wildly active, involved intellectual people, and that really stimulated my uh, political activism. Yeah. And so when I moved out to the West Coast, I continued that and got involved in rallies and mm -hmm. marches and all that kind of stuff. But I also uh, simultaneously recognized uh, how ineffective they were. This is, uh, by this time, it was the Nixon era. Yeah, and then after that, the John, uh, John was Johnson, then Nixon. Yeah, it was the Johnson era when I first moved here, and we were being ignored. And I, I, I seriously remember turning on the TV after being at a rally that had at least a quarter of a million people, and they were reporting it as ten thousand. And then in Walnut Creek, which was really a tiny town at that time. Um, there was a pro-war rally that had about 50 people, and they exaggerated the numbers, but you could see there was practically nobody there. Yeah. And I recognized that the media, everybody was all aligned against what we were doing. And, and uh, that really also affected me, and I realized that my style of activism was ineffective, mm -hmm. or at least even in masses of 50,000, we were ineffective. Um, we had some small effect because we did make it to the news or the mm -hmm. newspaper, but we didn't really have a, an effect on whether they bombed Laos or Cambodia or did any of these other horrible things they were doing in Vietnam. And it's not like you were counterbalancing power to the nothing. powers that were pushing in the other direction. Yeah. yeah, we basically had no real effect. It was surface cursory. And so uh, that's when I really decided that I needed to, to uh, put it in a more permanent form that would at least reflect the thinking and feeling of that era and time place. And so I started uh, doing paintings and stuff about um, 
my feelings. But my early attempts were, you know, looking back, actually undeveloped, corny. Uh, Can you remember any of those paintings? Yeah. 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 And then, and, and, and I would describe one where I had a painting of a, a guy tearing himself apart from the chest. And he, you know, this arm was black and this arm was red and this part was white and this part was yellow. And it's like corny shit. <laughs> Terrible. But. Fine ideas. Fine ideals. But yeah, I mean, yeah, the yeah. concept behind it, you know, in terms of an ideal was good, but the execution was terrible. I, I remember doing one of, uh, as a war painting, and it involved religion, and uh, I had this guy who'd fallen face forward, and he wasn't dead yet, but his arms reaching out, and somebody's shoving a big cross into his back, like stabbing him with a sword. I was like, yeah. totally corny. Uh, I mean, if, if those things got out there, I would be so embarrassed. Of course, I'm talking about them now, and they're getting out there. But, but, I mean, but not thematically dissimilar to the ideas that would, would work into your art. But yeah. I did have an occasional good thing. Like in 1968, after Robert Kennedy got shot, I was like up to here with assassinations. We'd lost John Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and now Robert Kennedy. Yeah. And I was pretty involved in, in his election. I really wanted to see him. To uh, think of the, the, the path of history with a, a Robert Kennedy president as opposed to a Richard Nixon president. Oh, my God. I mean, think of America at a crossroads. We wouldn't have yeah. a CIA. That was <laughs> some people's theories of why Kennedy got shot in the first place. Yeah. Because the two of them, the brothers, were thinking that the CIA was more of a problem than a help. Yeah. Anyway, those are just theories. We can't prove anything, but mm -hmm. interesting to think about. Um, I did this collage. My response to his assassination was, at that time, there was a huge poster, a travel poster on billboards and in magazines of the skyline of Manhattan, and it was an airplane in there, and it was maybe for United Airlines. And I decided, you know, I'm going to do the skyline of Manhattan in guns and bullets. And I went out, and I went to travel agencies, and I got one of those posters have a good example of the skyline of Manhattan. And I went out and bought a bunch of gun magazines. And I carefully cut out all the bullets and guns. And, and I did the whole skyline of Manhattan. And then I superimposed it with a part of the American flag mm -hmm. in transparent red and white painted over it, mm -hmm. big broad ones. And only a corner of the field of stars where there were only three stars, and those are the assassinations. And I had three big splats of blood dripping down the whole thing. Well, that wasn't a corny piece. That was a really good piece. And it really, 40 years later, I'm doing guns and bullet sculptures mm -hmm. of, you know, with a similar feeling. I mean, that predated it by 40 years. It's just amazing. I, I, I hung that in my house. I showed it. In those days, I didn't have galleries or anything. I didn't even know how to get near a gallery. Uh, I showed it in some art street fairs, like in San Francisco on Grant Avenue. And people were taking pictures of it like crazy. I mean, it really struck a chord. And after a while, I just put it away. 
Yeah. And it was in storage for years and years. In, 19, in 2008, I was having a show at the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco, and the curator who was writing the essay for, for the catalog was interviewing me, and he said, um, do you have any early work? I'd like to see some of your really early work. And I thought, well, I think I know where that thing is, and I dug it out. It was all just totally covered in dust and stuff. And I took a sponge and washed it, and, <laughs> and the guy goes, this is really good. We're putting it in the catalog. Oh, wow. So, did you know the catalog? Mm, no, I don't know. Let me, I, I got one right here, I'll show you. Um, anyway, I, we didn't put it in the show, but we put it in the catalog. Oh, beautiful. Here it is. Oh. oh, wow, this is gorgeous. So, I was preparing for a show in Washington, D.C. with Shepard Ferry. Yeah. The two of us. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that show, and uh, DJ Spooky as well. It was, yes. Uh, well, you know, very right. familiar. Right, it was actually three people, but he, he didn't show up, and I never got to see him, so I almost see it as, because he was like in a back room, mm-hmm. but Shepard and I had the, the main gallery. And this was right uh, right uh, just before, I think, uh, Obama got, uh, got uh, inaugurated. Just before the election. Yeah, oh, yes. the, before the election it was, okay. The opening was two weeks before the election. Yeah, well, so anyway, Shepard Ferry was really, you know, the, the man of the moment. before, I was about to ship the show and I still had all the pieces uncrated here in the studio and a friend brought a collector who happens to be a Washington and California lobbyist uh, mm-hmm. to the studio and the guy said well I want to buy something can I buy that and I said I'm sorry I got to ship this stuff to a show and I need to give him the opportunity to sell it I said afterwards or you can buy it from him but I, I can't sell you anything directly mm-hmm. so he tried and tried and I kept saying no you can't buy that I'm sorry it's going to the show so then I I hadn't put away the this collage yet it was sitting off on the side and he goes well what about that would you sell that (laughs) and I said sure I guess so I said you know I never considered selling it nobody's ever expressed an interest he says well how much you want so I thought for a few seconds and I said how about five thousand dollars I figured that would Cover some costs. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, it's a 40 old piece. And, uh, <laughs> 5,000 bucks sounded good to me. He goes, 5,000. How about 7,500? <laughs> and he actually paid me $7,500 for it. Wow. I thought 5,000 sounded a little low, to tell the truth. So 7,500 well, sounds better. It's great I that he, to be he saw fair, it that way. You know, yeah. But he, he, he was being more than fair. Yeah. I mean, he's the only person who's ever paid me more than I asked. You know, I mean, I was yeah, actually very impressed with that. So I sold it to him. Now, now it's in his collection. It's in his office, uh, yeah. you know, as a lobbyist. So he, he's, he definitely leans left, and so um, this, this works. Yeah. Do, do, I mean, your pieces are often very provocative. I mean, I guess that, that if, you're, if you're looking to sell to, to the widest level of people, your stuff is, a, is not gonna go. isn't going to go. I mean, there's a lot of people that wouldn't want such a heavy political piece in their in their office necessarily yeah most of my work all through my career outside of the dancer series uh, people have said I love your work can't live with it I just can't live with it and and I've heard that consistently throughout my career and so you know I just got used to that um, and I accept it that my work is uh, only some people can live with it most people get too uncomfortable 
But well, if your know, work makes a statement, then it's yeah. then it's not making another statement or whatever. You know, right. the statement not being made. So no, so that, that you always have choices. When I was doing the dancers, I wasn't aiming at a commercially viable body of work. I was actually Working. truly expressing myself yeah. from a deeper place, but it didn't read to the general public. It, it actually was misread as more commercial and misread as decorative. Yeah. And they are decorative, and they are pretty, and all that. But that wasn't the, the point. So basically, I have to look at myself and say, you missed the point, you know? Stop! Discontinue. <laughs> Do something else. And I did. So after seven years of working with dance and dancers, I, I moved on and I did beggars, mm -hmm. uh, which I had been doing anyway. Uh, my experience, when I had the opportunity to have my first show in San Francisco and in Munich, and I knew I had two shows opening a week apart, and I had absolutely no money, not even to buy ingots of bronze, even though I had my own foundry. Mm -hmm. Now, I built this foundry out of nothing because I couldn't afford to pay somebody to cast. It was a costly thing to have done. And so I couldn't even buy the raw materials. I was doing insane fundraising, mm -hmm. um, checking out philanthropists and organizations and all sorts of places. Uh, and people. And I started with family and nobody in my family would loan me money. Yeah. And then I moved on to friends and none of my friends. And I recognized I had no support. Actually, nobody believed in me. Nobody. Except my girlfriend. <laughs> my girlfriend said, I'll loan you money. But she wanted to marry me and I didn't want to marry her. <laughs> and I didn't want her money. because that, that like, That's what they call a string it. attached, I think. Yeah, well, I wasn't going there. And I said, no. Uh, ultimately, I got so frustrated, I ended up offering, the sculptures were selling for around $2,000 in that time, and I was offering free sculpture to, for every $2,000 somebody loaned me. Mm -hmm. Now, that's 100% interest. So, that was my offer. And so, Brian came through, and Brian had a friend who came through with 4000 and I ended up giving away a lot of sculptures, but I got my financing. I got my money for materials, and I was able to to create this. I, I had to do, I did fifty bronze figures in that year. Was was there any any uh, ethnicity or culture that was visible through these uh, the, these beggar sculptures? Or no, that was the dancer sculptures. Okay, the, the beggars I was grew out of my experience of trying to get funded. No, oh, you you were the beggar. I felt like a beggar. I was being turned down no matter where I went. It was very difficult for me, emotionally. I mean, I, it was especially difficult with family, that I recognized that they didn't believe in me. I, but that realization hurt. You know, you would think at least one of your brothers, uh, you know, would... You had six or yeah, five. <laughs> yeah, and, and we were a close-knit family, you know, I mean, at least emotionally. And so it was really a major disappointment. And I, I recognized at that point in my life that I was really quite on my own. And, and, and that I, that was going to be my life. And so I had to make some adjustments to that. And that's when I came up with this plan offering outrageous returns for an open-ended loan. Open-ended in the sense that if my show didn't sell, I wasn't going to be able to pay them back. But as it turned out, the shows were successful and I was able to pay everybody back immediately. You know, so that was nice, but big lesson. But while I was going through the experience of dealing with rejection... Uh, in terms of the support, and because I felt like a beggar, I started this beggar series. They were really small sculptures, 
And they started out as just people literally begging with their hands out and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But it soon evolved, and I started thinking of every way that you can beg, you know, begging for your life. I had this guy at being ready to be burned at the stake, you know. Um, <laughs> I had guy in a straitjacket writhing on the floor. That's one of my favorites because, you know, you take your personal fears and you put it in into that. And what would make you beg? You know, and, and so I looked at that. And so I looked at all these different ways that begging came into being, mm -hmm. not just lack of funds. So the, the series evolved. And so I, then after I did these initial shows of dancers, I, I had a dealer for a short while who gave me a show called Dancers and Beggars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> unlikely combination of uh, <laughs> concepts, but we did it. Be good for a fundraiser for the ballet, I guess. Sold a couple of dancers. <laughs> he didn't sell any beggars, but you know. Anyway, so the beggar series was my next endeavor. I, I I recognized at that point that I had really taken a break from my whole original intent of being an artist, okay. which was to do social commentary work and comment on the politics and the. Can you imagine what year the beggars might have uh, started? I'd say nineteen. 79. Ah. I mean, I, I would like to tie them into the Reagan era. It seems like politically, uh, with the uh, evisceration of social programs yeah, and everything, yeah. the, the beggars would be right. I guess maybe you were doing well, the zeitgeist was, is where you were. You that know? was something I was very aware of. Anyway, I started it just because of the personal experiences, but I was aware of the, the broader as well. One, two, three, four. That's it for part one. Tune back next week for part two to hear Al hit creative heights that justify his long struggle to create. Reach the Fun to Know podcast through our Facebook page and send suggestions for future guests. I'm really looking forward to bringing more female guests to the interview table. I'm Dan Buskirk. Check out my film reviews at Falker.com. Hear my jazz radio show every Monday at 11 a.m. on WPRB Princeton. And please come back for more of the Fun to Know podcast. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.